Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated, and where practical support is available to all Aboriginal women who are currently experiencing family violence or have in the past. This land always was, and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Clementine Ford, offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. You might have noticed that I'm trying something different with the hotline this week. Like the best high school movies, I'm giving the pod a little makeover. Shorter, sleeker intro, and more of the stuff that makes the hotline so special. Advice drawn from the personal experiences of the Big Sisters. Whether you're familiar with the guest Big Sisters or not, I'm going back to one of the fundamental principles of storytelling. Tell people something they don't know about something or someone they thought they did. So with that in mind, I'm delighted to introduce this week's guest Big Sister. Justine Reid is a proud Gungaloo woman, social worker and a vocal activist for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. As a survivor of domestic violence, she's also a passionate advocate for domestic violence prevention and reform. You can follow Justine on Instagram at Murray underscore Mama. Justine, thank you so much for being this uh, this week's guest Big Sister. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I keep seeing you pop up in podcasts all over my feed, so it feels like you're a woman in huge demand right now. It's been funny. I had never done a podcast, and then all of a sudden, this is my third. I've done three in like a month, but it's, yeah, it's never been my space, but all of a sudden, people want to hear what I've got to say, apparently. What do you think has prompted that, um, I guess, upswing in people going, oh, we need to get that woman? I think it was when I did the um, takeover, um, share the mic with dangerous females, potentially. Um, people sort of were a bit more exposed to my message and, you know, heard my voice speaking on, you know, a topic that I'm always speaking about and posting about, but I guess it diversified the audience a bit perhaps and 
you know, then I did a podcast talking about the Uluru Statement and then I did another one sharing my own story with domestic violence and now here I am with you and I'm so bloody excited about it. Well, I would just like to say that I have been asking you to do this podcast for a while, so I'm not just jumping on a bandwagon. (laughs) No, you were actually the first one to ask me. That is very true, very true. One of the things that um, I, uh, you know, a lot of women ask me is how they can build up their platform or how they can um, basically transition the work that they're doing now, which may be informal work, you know, nine to five office work, how they can parlay that into the work that they really want to do, which is, you know, having a platform, sharing a message, creating a community of other women, which, as you've just pointed out, you're kind of like you've caught the wave now and it feels like you're riding the wave in. So what advice would you give to young women who are looking to do something similar to that? I think the key is to be be yourself, but also be unique. You know, there's enough, and I'm not discrediting the, you know, Insta model type at all. I think that that's fantastic. If that's what's bringing women their bread and butter, go for it by all means. But there's a lot of that and we've been kind of saturated with that. And I think people are starting to look for more value in their content. They want to tap into resources and to learn and to um we're evolving I guess a little bit with our social media content and so whatever it is that you're bringing bring it but do it in a way that no one else is doing it you got to crack the thousand follower mark and then I think the real key is once you get to that 10,000 follower mark you get a lot of extra features with Instagram um, you know, like your swipe ups and you know, all of that sort of thing. So I always think when I press follow on somebody, I'm giving power to them. I'm saying, I want to see what you're offering. I want you in my space. And you've got to think like, what, what will people gain from watching me and listening to me and learning from me? I want to deviate to a different topic now. Um, and go back more towards the principles of big sisterhood and ask you, Justine Reed, what does sisterhood mean to you? Sisterhood to me is, I guess, on a surface level, it's about the women in my life, you know, and having that. And it is the women in my life that, you know, give me that fire in my belly and inspire me and, there for me and I've grown up with a lot of very incredible women around me um and I have you know a circle of beautiful women around me but I also have a community of women online that are backing me and supporting me and I think that's what sisterhood is it's being an ally to other women even if you're you know not about the same things it's still banding together as women and empowering each other and having, you know, the, not every woman has the goal of dismantling the patriarchy, but the sisterhood collectively can come together and achieve so much as a sisterhood. And that notion too, of not just having your, you know, circles, having your horseshoes and allowing space for other women to come in and be part of the sisterhood. And when I say women, I'm not, you know, I mean, 
you know, anyone who identifies as a woman or non-binary of like that goes without saying. Um, yeah, that's just, that's the sisterhood to me, I guess. I'm curious about how, uh, you know, as an Aboriginal woman growing up with Aboriginal community and with other Aboriginal women, the different principles of collective action that you've experienced versus, you know, a really negative kind of individualistic approach that white culture instills in in women. Yeah, that's it's. I often talk about how I kind of grew up in two worlds because my parents separated and my mum was white and lived as a single mother in the city. My dad is Aboriginal and so I spent a lot of time between in Rockhampton. So I spent a lot of time between the two places. And you know, in Aboriginal culture, we are all sisters. We call we literally call each other sis. Like that's how we refer to other Aboriginal women. And um, you know, at an older um, Aboriginal woman would be auntie and, you know, a younger sort of um, child or even a young teen, you might call them bub as like a term of endearment, but it's sis, we're we're all sisters. We see each other as sisters. That's how our kinship systems work, you know, and everyone's, everyone's your auntie, everyone's a sister, everyone's your cousin. You have this, you know that there's always going to be somebody there like there's always going to be somebody there for you. If if mum's not available, if auntie's not available, then there'll be another woman willing to, you know, help and do something and compare that to, like you said, the individualist, you know, principles of Western society and how isolated we become as mothers as women you know expected to just do it all on our own Mm. it's you know they say it takes a village I'm I'm such a believer in that and I think we have so much to learn from indigenous cultures around the world in terms of community and how we can all just be there for each other collectively I've been thinking about that uh, a lot more particularly in recent weeks as well as, you know, people are more consciously, you know, not everyone, of course, but hopefully more and more people are more consciously engaging with the politics and the principles of Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, reflecting on the treatment of Indigenous people in Australia institutionally and also systemically. Um, I've been thinking about how language, and we've got a couple of questions actually later on about language and the importance of language and being really conscious and deliberate about the language that we use. And the sort of assumed um, state of play that often gets invoked as being, well, this is the way that things are, and and it's about a range of different topics, but um, how actually it just reflects often, no, this is the way that whiteness is or this is the way that Western culture is. And in terms of motherhood... I've been guilty in the past and will probably do it again in the future but hopefully catch myself and uh, and reflect in the moment and change the way that I'm framing it of dismissing motherhood generally as being as, as being collectively treated as insignificant. And I think that that's definitely very true in western culture and in white culture that women are forced often even if they're partnered with men they're forced often to do it by themselves and they you know we lack community. And we lack the principles of all pitching in and 
understanding that when we bring a baby home, there's going to be 50 people that are around to help us out. But I've been trying to remind myself that that's actually not the way that it is for everyone. And so to speak, to not speak collectively about motherhood as being treated in this one particular way. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, it is a very Western white view, um, but it's not, it's not necessarily something that we can't, um, as a sisterhood, change. And I've been guilty in the past too of only of shaming other mothers for not making the same, you know, choices as I have. Um, like, you know, I'm about breastfeeding, for instance, because culturally to me there was no way I was not going to breastfeed. And I even had moments where I couldn't breastfeed and so I would have a friend or a cousin breastfeed for me because in my culture that's really normal. I've been breastfed by all my aunties and so to me, this notion of not women not breastfeeding, I was really judgy about it initially when I first became a mother. And so I think it works both ways in that, you know, I need to also be aware that, and I am probably much more aware now I work in a social workspace, that in the society that we are in, in Western society, in the suburban setting, mothers are really doing it on their own, but you know, in community, not they're not necessarily. And this is where a lot of our um, issues arise, even in obviously I work in child protection. Um, it's about not having support networks and it's about not having the, that community. And when you can instill those support networks and that sense of kinship and community and, you know, put people around, not just mothers, just human beings in general, that's where they're able to you know, transform and create change in their own lives if, if that's what they need to do. I know that you, uh, like me, have lost your mother, um, which obviously you've posted a little bit about that and, you know, a lot of what you've said has really resonated with me. So firstly, I'd like to say I'm really sorry that you've gone through that. It sucks to be part of the motherless club, um, the dead mothers club, uh, which might sound to people who've not gone through that, that might sound like a really kind of pointed harsh thing to say but I feel like once you've gone through a grief like that and it has touched your life in a really profound way for me it helps to sort of have a little bit of flippancy and dark humor about it um so being in the dead oh, mother's club it's, it's not a job and it's not a club anyone wants to join but you know we do all offer each other a lot of support we while we're here what is it that you miss about what is it that you miss most about your mother Oh my goodness. Oh, just, just her, just honestly, her, just who she was, her spirit, her generosity of spirit, her, she was just the most giving selfless human. I cannot, she was so socially aware. Um, she worked, so my mother was white, but she worked um, in oral health. She was a dental therapist and she worked at the Murray School in Brisbane. And she would come home, you know, without her Kathmandu jacket, sometimes freezing, not that it gets that cold in Brisbane, but, um, and I'd be like, mum, where's your jumper? And she would have given it to a child at school who didn't have one. It's hard to say one thing. I don't know if you can do that. I totally agree with you though on the Dead Mothers Club point. It's, I say that to people who have lost their mum, you know, like, 
oh, you're part of the club. I'm so sorry. And I am so sorry you've had to go through that too, Clementine. I, it's, it is, it just leaves such a screaming deficit in your life. And until you've lived it, you just, yeah, it's, mm, I don't know. Do you miss one thing in particular about your mum? I mean, I think that you're right, that it's more the essence. Uh, what I miss about my mother the most, I think, though, it's not even anything to do with her or what I remember about her. I miss the potential to get to know her better because she died when I was 25 and that's an age where you're just really starting to come out of that, you know, tortured adolescence. And I wasn't I wasn't a wild child in that I didn't give my parents grief by sneaking out of the house or, you know... Um, doing anything that where they would be really worried about my physical safety but I was really obnoxious I don't know if you can imagine this but I was a bit of a back chatter (laughs) Um, and I feel like you know I was I was very obnoxious to my mother uh, in particular and I feel ashamed now when I think back on the sort of derisive way that I used to speak to her and and think about her life and now, of course, that I'm 38 uh, or 39, God, I just turned 39. Now that I'm 39 and I have a child of my own and I've had, you know, 14 years without her to think about all of that time that's been missed, you know, there's so much that I didn't know about her that I've that all of that knowledge is lost now. I read something really beautiful the other day, which is uh, – and, and I read it on Facebook, so I don't know if it's true. Maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But it's a beautiful sentiment regardless. And someone had said that in Senegal they have a saying that when an elderly person dies, a library has burned. And I feel a little bit like that with my mother, you know, that she died when she was 57 and there's all of this knowledge that's just gone with her now. And to an extent I will always be missing and grieving for my mother, but a big part of what I'm grieving for is the parts of her that I didn't yet know. I totally relate to that. My, I was... 31 when my mum died so a little bit older um she was quite young like your mum she was only 62 um and she died very very suddenly I definitely did get to know her a bit and appreciate her as a mother because I was a mother and I had that um I guess kind of guidance and love and appreciation for how hard it is to be a mum Um, once I had my own children and I was able to have some really big, beautiful conversations with her before she passed. But at the same time, there's so many things that I wish I'd been able to ask. And I guess it's one of those things that people probably don't even think about until they, until their loved ones are gone. Um, But that is such a beautiful saying, whether it's accurate or not, I'm going to run with it because it is like having a library that's burned. Definitely. I, I hate the fact that my mother will never meet my son because she would fucking adore him, you know, and he would adore her. And that's a huge part of the grief for me is that these these two most po- important people in my life will never be in each other's lives. And there's two things that I, I often kind of go back to with that, um, which gives me a lot of comfort. So for the motherless daughters out there, maybe think of these two. Um, firstly, because of basic cause and effect, my life occurred in a certain way after my mother died and part of that was my son being born. So there's no universe in which the two of them could have coexisted. So I feel like if I had to lose her, isn't it such a beautiful, wonderful gift that I got him in return? 
um, you know, the great circle of life, etc., etc. So the other thing that I think is that when I was pregnant, I was looking at, you know, at each stage, as you would know, you sort of look at like, what size fruit is my baby this week? Or like, what's going on in my baby's body? And when you're around 28 weeks pregnant, I think it is, um, if you're carrying a child that is likely to be assigned female at birth, that child will have already developed all of the eggs that it will produce in its lifetime. And so I thought, oh, that's curious. And then I gave birth to, uh, you know, my son and he's very determined at the moment saying he's a boy all the time. So I feel confident in, you know, going with that label. Um, And I remember thinking at the time, oh, so when my mother was carrying me at around 28 weeks and for the rest of that pregnancy, I had every single egg that I would ever have in my lifetime, which means that she was carrying 50% of the genetic material of my son all of those years ago, which is special and beautiful. And there is a, there's a lineage directly between me from her to him, which alleviates some of the grief that I have about it. Because even if she never gets to meet him, she got to carry him very briefly herself. That is so beautiful. I did know that fact, but I'd never thought about it in those terms. That is absolutely beautiful. And definitely, I think something because I've thought about having another child, um, you know, and my mother won't meet that child. And I've thought, how sad will that you know, be? Because she adored her grandbabies beyond belief. Um, and, yeah, that's that's beautiful. I really like that book, Clem. Thank you. Me too. Should we get on with the questions? Yeah, let's do it. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Justine Reed are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who take amazing selfies. Single and happy rights. Three years ago, after eight years and two daughters, I had an overwhelming gut feeling to get out. I wasn't abused in my relationship. He did his quote unquote fair share a great father, etc. But I knew deep down I needed to be alone to thrive, so I left. Cue the next year of single life and me letting my sexual bucket list overflow on my kid-free nights. Then something shifted again and I started to feel like even these men were truly not worthy of my time. It's been over a year of not a single date with a man and I can safely say that I'm happier than I've ever been. The sheer thought of letting another man into my life angers me. Now, I worried a little about this and confided in a girlfriend about it and was basically told that I've become bitter. Here's me picturing the old cat ladies mocked in stories thinking, but that's not me, I'm happy. So my question is, have you noticed this response from women? I expected it from men. Justine. The first part of that I want to unpack is that um, even the need to say, he didn't abuse me and he did his fair share, but I still felt that I still felt like I had to get out. You don't have to justify leaving a relationship. If you want out, you're allowed to leave. You're, you're allowed to do that. And even if you have children, you know, it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad mother. This idea that you have to stay up because they're a, a good man. It's complete bullshit. Secondly, um, I just want to say, you don't need a man to be happy. You don't need a relationship to be happy. You have, you're not bitter. You're, you're certainly not bitter. You don't even sound bitter. 
you sound like you're a woman who knows their worth and it, you don't want to waste it on people who aren't worthy of your time. More power to you, sister. Like, good on you. Live the life of your dreams. And if that doesn't involve a relationship or a man, good on you. Like, my mum was very, very single um, in her sort of last over a decade of her life and had never been happier and said, I don't, I'm, I don't, relationships don't make me happy. Being with a man doesn't make me happy. I am happy independently on my own. And she had a great time just, you know, living her best life with her girlfriends and doing what she wanted. And I totally appreciate that. I think it's, there's nothing wrong with it. And I'm sorry that your friends feel like they need to shame you because of it. Um, but I think that comes from that internalized misogyny and that message that we're always fed that, you know, you need to get married and settle down and have a baby and have the white picket fence and the picture perfect life. And no, do what you want to do that makes you happy. If you're not causing, you know, intentional or unnecessary pain in anybody else's life, then you're not doing anything wrong. This is something I think a lot of women feel pressure to do, which is sort of offer those caveats and those excuses, whether or, whether or not it's in leaving their male partners or even in staying with their male partners. I saw an article pop up on my Facebook yesterday about, you know, another article about domestic labour under COVID-19 and how women are taking on the vast majority of the bulk of domestic labour. What a fucking surprise. Um, and the woman who was quoted in it, does everything at home. She cooks the dinner, she takes care of the kids. She's, you know, she's the one who's charged with kind of, you know, being the CEO of the household. But she takes pains at the same time to say, well, he's a great father. You know, he's he's a really great support, you know, or he works in construction all day. So therefore somehow that means that he gets to go and work for nine hours a day and come home and do absolutely nothing. Whereas she's working 16 hours a day or whatever it might be. And this is a trick that the patriarchy plays on us is this, you know, this, it instills in us this belief that we need to constantly offer apologies for men and to soften the blow with which we're talking about them and also with which other people may see them. So I completely agree with you when, uh, you know, you, you don't need an excuse to leave a relationship if you're unhappy in one. There doesn't need to be, men being nice to you is not, the bloody exchange that they make so that you stay with them for the rest of your life, even if you're not doing everything around the house, that, you know, that you somehow owe it to them. I wish that more women not just understood that but also recognised that this, this expectation on us to continually provide, you know, what the philosopher Kate Mann calls himpathy, and she uses it in a, in a more specific way, I think, sometimes, which is the himpathy empathy for him that we give to men who who harm women but empathy kind of operates in lots of different ways and and this is a case of empathy as well that we're expected to sort of be grateful for men kind of treating us nicely you know and and sacrifice everything in exchange I read this and I was fist bumping like yeah you go girl you get out of there if you're not happy and then you spend the next year fucking everyone that you can if you want to do that and then you spend the next three years or five years or ten years or maybe the rest of your life saying I don't want to have a bar of men I don't want them to be in my house I don't want to have to deal with their shoes I don't want to have to pick up their fucking jocks 
I get it. I so get it. I so get it. Like my current partner, he does all the cleaning. I cook. He makes school lunches. I mean, he does all the washing. I'm, I'm not saying that to, to brag or to, that's just how it is. That's just how the dynamic works in our house. But I'm constantly told how lucky I am. And, you know, oh, you've got, you've got a good one. Hold on to him. Like, no, if he lived on his own, he would have to clean his own house and make his own food. What's the, what's the bloody difference? Like, her, this woman's friend, uh, and I'm not, I'm not casting any aspersion on her either way. I think that she's responding the way that patriarchy has trained us to respond, which is to assume that the worst thing that can happen to a woman is to be alone, um, to be without man. Um, so the idea that somehow, like, not wanting to be with a man – I mean, look, maybe, maybe single and happy is actually using every opportunity at every girl's night out or on Zoom now to talk about how – fucking awful men are and how she never wants to have a bar or one for the rest of her life. Also fine. Um, I can understand why someone might respond to that by saying, look, we get it, all right, just you're starting to sound a little bit like a broken record. Um, usually because that's what my friends say to me <laughs> about the way that I talk about men. Uh, but, but I think that the more likely answer is probably that a lot of women feel very... Um, almost agitated by even being in the vicinity of someone talking about how they don't need a man. It's like they'll be tainted by association. It's like somehow if you're having a private conversation with a girlfriend and she says, you know what, I, I actually do just hate men or I just don't want to have a man in my life, that the patriarchy has worked its magic so well on us that we're almost afraid that like Big Brother is going to hear us and report back that these two... It's, it's the classic cartoon of not all man, superhero man bursting through the window to interrupt a conversation between two women and say, well, not all men are like this or you're just a bitter old cat lady. And I also think it's really funny when people say, um, oh, well, you know, good luck with your cat. So you're going to grow, grow, you're going to be old and alone and no wonder no one's wanted to marry you. And you're like, what do you think marriage is? Do you think that it's this great fucking space for women to be in? Do you think that being, do you think that me getting to go home to my apartment by myself every day, I don't have cats, but if I did have cats, go home to my cats, cook dinner for myself, wear what I want to wear, not have to talk to anyone if I don't want to talk to them. Do you think that that is an unhappy life for me? What does that say to you about how, how you perceive women and women's purpose to be in life? That the only the only way we can possibly come to life is by having a man around to observe us living that life. Exactly, and also a man who chooses to be single and live alone is labelled a bachelor, and you know everyone kind of no one questions his choice to just do his own thing whenever he wants and not be answerable to anyone and be happy without, you know, a lady in his life, a woman in his life. It like it's just it's fucking patriarchy 101. And it doesn't surprise me also that, you know, her friends got defensive because they're potentially married themselves. And well what does that say about me? Mm -hmm. What does that say about me if if you're happy alone and it might even be making them a bit uncomfortable and questioning their own relationships and marriages. I think that's so true and such a common response 
uh, that, you know, and not all women will be motivated by that, but to see someone else living in a way that suggests that patriarchy is of no value to them and to see them defining their own life choices according to what they want and what they need and without deference to men in their life can be very confronting to a lot of women who have absorbed the message their whole lives that men are an integral part of our happiness. Not just having men in our life, but being chosen by a man is somehow like validating for us. And I think as well when, you know, you're right when you say that these women may be married themselves. Um, and this is not a judgment on women who are married who are potentially responding in this way. Uh, but all I'm saying is that if you are someone like that or if you know people like that, maybe just gently kind of ponder possibility that it could be confronting to you to hear or see friends liberating themselves from unhappy marriages whether or not those marriages are just unhappy because they're unfulfilling in some way and realizing that what that presents to you is that you have that choice too and that choice may be more difficult for you in some ways and it may be easier in some ways but that choice exists and I think that being confronted with that is is quite challenging for a lot of women because what is it once you see it you can't unsee it I know a lot of women who persistently complain about their husbands, uh, you know, not doing enough around the house, not not being supportive partners. And I, a couple of weeks ago on the show, I talked about how easily that word partner is used and how actually a lot of people should stop using it because partner is a title that you should have to earn. And partner is not something that a lot of people, a lot of people who are, have the privilege of being called a partner do not actually embody the values of what partnership is. And they don't reflect that in the way that they treat the women who they live with. Um, so once you're confronted with that, what what do you do with that information? And sometimes people lash out with it because it's easier to say, well, actually you're very unhappy or you're bitter or you're not, you know, you're... You, th- you behave like your life is so much better now, but actually you're alone and you're just becoming someone who's really angry and I'm happy because I'm with this guy. And yeah, sure, it's not perfect, but you know we're happy together and we're working through it. And I feel like there's, there could be a lot of undercurrent going on there. But if you are single and alone and determining your own life, then that's amazing. That's what I want for all women, not necessarily the single part, but to be determining their own life. Be in charge of your own happiness. Definitely, definitely. And when you said about undercurrent as well, there could definitely be an undercurrent of um, her kind of liberation and, um, you know, happiness and, you know, saying she doesn't need a man, they're not worthy of my time. If, if, and I'm hypothesising and making assumptions here, but, you know, if those other women have husbands, it might be making their husbands uncomfortable too because I know that as a very loud feminist and as, um, you know, I'm not currently single but I have been single um, woman, I have made a lot of, like a lot of my friends' husbands don't like me, Um, you know, so that could be part of it as well. Exactly. But in short, I think that you're doing amazingly well, single and happy, and I hope you stay at the very least happy, even if you choose to repartner again in the future. But don't live with another man. (laughs) 
just a little content note on this next question that it does use it does deal with language around rape and sexual violence Concerned friend writes, in a recent group chat, one of my male friends in his 30s casually used the word rape to describe a football loss, i.e. that guy got raped in the footy. I didn't like it, so I typed, gosh, could you please not use the word rape like that? Immediately, he private messaged me and said, hey, just wanted to chat one-on-one. If I upset you, I'm really sorry for that. I won't use that language again. I feel he understood my concern, but the others in the group chat don't see his response. And then I felt weird about the message just sitting there, so I deleted it. Now I feel confused and wonder if I should have messaged him privately in the first place. I guess I wanted other people to acknowledge it too. The thing is, since I deleted my message, there's still been no public conversation from any of them about it. So his original words are just sitting there still. Now I feel confused and wonder if I should have messaged him privately in the first place. I guess I wanted other people to acknowledge it too. The thing is, since I deleted my message, there's still been no public conversation from any of them about it. So his original words are just sitting there still. How do we call things like this out? I'll admit I'm not 100% versed in feminism, but I feel this is important. How are we changing language to hurt others? When is it not just being politically correct, but actually drawing a line of what is okay to say? Justine. So, I mean, firstly, I would have not, I would have said to him in the one-on-one why did you feel the need to only apologize to me one-on-one and, you know, why and called him out on that as well. But, you know, beauty of hindsight, that's not how you handled the situation and it is what it is. And, you know, the combo's there and it, whatever, but in a more broader context with your more broad question about calling out language, we have to call it out. We definitely have a responsibility to call it out. But I understand that sometimes that's not easy and it can be uncomfortable. But I will say that the more you do it, the easier it gets. Um, I'm, I've am i been guilty of not calling out, um, you know, racism before for fear of it impacting, you know, my work or my job. I no longer feel that way and I do call things out. Um, and at the same time, I'm still like, we're all still learning. And I, um, you know, recently have started to reflect on my language around um, disability and things like that, which is thanks to a podcast that you did, Clem, um, with Carly. But, um, you know, I, it, we have to call it out. We have to call it out. And it's not easy. I will give you that. I mean, Clem, you're probably the queen of calling it out. What, what do you oh, think? I don't know if I'm the queen of calling it out because I'm certainly equally as guilty of persistently fucking up. Um, what I hope I'm okay at is being called out and responding in a thoughtful way. I mean, because this is kind of getting to the heart of this question is that why do people respond the way that they do when they're called out? You know, it's a, they may respond in a range of different ways and one may be to become defensive um, and aggressive And another may be, as you pointed out, Justine, to try to kind of go back channel with it, which is not really engaged. It's sort of, it's the illusion of dealing with it, but it's not really dealing with it at all. It's, It's kind of deflecting the shame that they feel has been placed on them or the shame that they feel from being called out that they're not willing to lean into and, and kind of assess why they feel that way. Um, or they own it publicly, they acknowledge it and they commit to doing better. Um, 
I picked up on the same thing that you did, which was why did he immediately feel the need to apologise one-on-one and to not do it in front of the people to whom it should matter, which is other men who are witnessing that behaviour and thinking that it's okay. Because that's the other thing that annoyed me was why you said before, Justine, that you've been guilty of not calling out racism. I mean, okay, fine, but you are the target of racism. So for you to call it out actually has a lot more of an impact and risk for you than it does for for someone like me who's a white woman so why is it always the why is the onus always on the people who are experiencing the like full brunt of the word or the full brunt of the aggression to be the ones who call it out why did none like why in this group of people who are in their 30s as she said why have they reached their this age and none of them know that it's inappropriate, not even inappropriate, but that it's actually really offensive to use rape as a kind of flippant verb to describe someone being beaten in a game. I mean, that's that's not okay that none of them said anything and that none of them have responded to what she said or even engaged with it, even if it's to say, well, can you explain that a little bit more? You know, I also understand why she's feeling a little bit anxiety-stricken about this because calling someone out particularly as she said she's she doesn't feel like she's very well versed in feminism so maybe she doesn't necessarily feel confident that she's uh, got the right language with which to talk about this in, w- in which to which I would say there's no such thing as the right or wrong language when you're expressing a view that something has been harmful to you you know you should have the confidence that you've done the right thing that you've been brave in calling this out um, even if you haven't done in the past there's lots of reasons why you would feel uncomfortable not doing that the most serious of which is that it places you at a very huge risk of having not just him but that whole group of men turn on you which can be quite confronting and quite uncomfortable obviously um so i think you did the right thing but i think i would go back to him now and say why did you feel the need to apologize privately and I would appreciate it if you truly are committed to not using this word again. I would appreciate you outlining that in our group chat and explaining why you were wrong. And that will be the proof that you need as to whether or not he's acting like a real committed ally or he's just trying to kind of diffuse the situation with you because he personally doesn't want you to think that he's a bad guy. If he's willing to go and do that work in front of his, in front of his mates and model that behaviour, that will be a really powerful outcome. And if he's not willing to do something as simple as that, then I would question whether or not he's someone that you can really trust being around. Spot on. I also just wonder too, I mean, obviously you know who sent this message, so you know that it's a woman, but were there other women in that group as well, chat? Like were there other women that witnessed this and didn't call it out and may have been equally upset by it. Even other men that were upset by it and didn't feel the need to call it out. I think what you're saying is to go back and maybe address it is spot on because it, you know, there needs to be a dialogue. There needs to be a dialogue around it. That's the only way that change can have a hope of happening is if friendship groups and communities are willing to have those really uncomfortable conversations with each other. And I'm I'm sure, Justine, that you've had experience your whole life, but specifically been ramped up in the last few weeks of dealing with people kind of, I guess, engaging with racism and their, you know, commitment to anti-racism and wanting to... I mean, I know a lot of black educators have 
come out publicly and said, please stop coming to my private messages and expecting me to educate you on this. Or please, please stop taking things back channel, like own it publicly. Um, so it's the other thing as well is that it's a, it, clearly with someone like you, I'm sure it has a draining effect on your energy to have to deal with people not being willing to have those conversations publicly. Yeah, I will say this too, though. I'm white passing, which is a privilege in itself. You know, I'm Aboriginal, but I'm quite fair um, compared to a lot of my family and obviously other Aboriginal people, some Aboriginal people. There are a lot of us that are white passing. Um, So I don't cop the, I guess, brunt of racism that a lot of my, you know, darker skinned brothers and sisters would. Um, I've definitely been subjected to it, though. But the thing, not only that expectation that we are the ones that should educate But also the other thing that happens too is people want to be praised and coming to me saying, you know, I did this, I did this, I called out this, I, you know, this white heroism and, you know, you want me to praise you for your allyship. Go and talk about your allyship with your other white mates. You know, they're the ones that you need to yield and get on board with this. I don't... I am drained and I don't have the time and capacity to pat you on the back, nor should I have to. I I have a small glimmer of that, um, of what you've just said in terms of men coming to me and saying like, I've done this or I called this out or like, did you see this horrible thing? It's like, cool, why don't you go and talk to men about that? You know, but don't go go and say, hey, look what I did as a great man, you know. It is that really weird line where – you know, and this is where the shame and the glory comes in, is that people don't want to feel shame, but they they confuse being shown a better way with being shamed for the way that they are, as, as opposed to being presented an opportunity to grow and learn. One thing I will practically say to uh, this beautiful little sister is that it is really, really hard to call people out. It's scary and it's, uh, it's anxiety-inducing because you don't know what the response is that you're going to get. Um, But there are some effective ways to do it. And one is that you can say, I don't get it. Can you explain that to me? And Or you can say, "Um, I didn't hear that. Can you repeat it? I mean, obviously, in the context of a group chat, it may have been effective publicly if you felt comfortable doing this, saying, I don't get it. Can you explain to me why you think that he was raped in the footy? I don't get that. Um, And force him to outline it. Force him to reflect in the moment on what it is that he said. Um, just being very straight and clear about stuff, I think, is a good approach. Like, like as we said, you could go back to him and say, um, I'm really curious as to why you felt the need to do this privately. And I think that if you are committed to change, then I, I expect you to go and publicly address this. And I'm not saying this because I'm angry at you. I'm saying this because you're my friend. And this is an important topic and I'm giving you the opportunity to grow and learn from this. And then it's up to him really what he does with that. I mean, we all have to kind of let go of the responsibility to keep holding people's hands through this. You can show them you can show them the path, but they have to be the one that takes the first step onto it. Okay, this question deals with domestic abuse and is quite a prickly one. So just 
go gently with this one, listeners. I also just want to say that um, I received this question a couple of weeks ago and I was uncertain about how to handle it necessarily because I clearly don't have the professional expertise to properly deal with a question like this. But Justine, as a domestic abuse survivor and advocate and a social worker, I feel like you have the skills to be able to address this. Can't Stay Silent writes, I have two best friends who are married to each other. We all lived together for years during our 20s. I was a bridesmaid at their wedding and I'm a godmother to their three beautiful children. We are as close as friends can be. That all changed a month ago when he slapped her during an argument and the rage I feel at what he has done is indescribable. She's decided to stay with him and I want to ensure I support her as much as possible, but I don't know how to do this as he is always around. If I ignore him or are mad at him, eventually I won't be invited to their home anymore. We can't spend any time together without him. How do I maintain my friendship with her? How do I support her and her decisions when he's always there? I know that eventually, with the awkwardness of me ignoring her husband, she'll pick him over me. Right now, she needs her female friend's support, not to push them away. Do I just put up with him and be cordial in order to continue my relationship with her? This isn't what I want to do, but is it what's best in terms of supporting her? Yeah, I I definitely um, work in this space and have obviously lived through this kind of um, space, not on the... Um, side of the friend but on the you know side of the person who's having violence perpetrated against them initially when I first um you know read this question my initial thought was wow if he's willing to do that in front of people like what is happening at home um and I have no question about the level of coercive control that's going on in that relationship given that this woman is not allowed to even hang out with her friends without without him present that just is the biggest red flag um so there's definitely definitely you know some significant concerns i have for that woman and those children um but in terms of being I guess, on the other side of it. I've never been the friend of somebody who's going, who's gone through this or who's going through this. I've been in a professional capacity working with um, survivors and of domestic violence and women who are still going through it. And it is really difficult, even in a professional setting, to help women um, because for a multitude of reasons, you know, even if I've been in situations where the perpetrator wasn't present, but had cameras set up in the home. So it wasn't something I could even discuss with um, the client. The, the key is having a conversation, very gentle conversation, but I recognize how difficult that is to do uh, given that he's always there. Um, If you ever have I guess the chance to check in with her without him around, even briefly, just, are you okay? I'm a bit worried. Very gentle, gentle questioning because she may not be ready to talk about it. She may not be ready to open up about it. It's very, um, it's very difficult to leave a relationship where there is domestic violence um, and abuse and, because it's wrapped up in the cycle of violence and the coercive control that goes along with that. Um, So it's about 
being really respectful with your language, very careful with your language and um, not casting any shame or judgment on the situation and not telling your friend what to do or, you know, saying you, you need to leave him. I can't believe you put up with that. That's not going to um, make her feel safe to come to you when the time is right. And you are very correct in saying that potentially you could push her further towards him and isolate her from you. And you definitely don't want that. You definitely don't want that because that's his goal. His goal will be to isolate her from every support network she could possibly have. Um, like I said, I've never been the friend of somebody who's experiencing this, but I know in my own friendship circles, um, when I did leave my relationship, I had a lot of friends say to me, oh my goodness, do you know how hard it has been to be your friend and watch like watch this and know this and see this and not be able to, to do anything. And it was something I had never, ever considered was how difficult it, it would be to watch your friend going through that. I mean, obviously I've watched people go through it in that professional capacity, but I, I cannot, cannot, cannot thank those women in my life that held space for me and just stayed there until I was ready, um, you know, and it, I, I can't even fathom how difficult it is for you, but you are doing the right thing. You, you definitely are. Um, and like I said, if you have a brief moment just to check in with her, um, you know, do that. Uh, and then when it comes to the time that she potentially feels confident to confide in you, um, really non-judgmental language and allowing her um, sort of giving, sorry, giving her the information on what, what services are available because you're not a trained professional in this space. So, you know, the, the option of saying, okay, cool, you're ready to leave, let's do it. That's definitely not, um, not helpful or safe. It's the most dangerous time for somebody to leave a domestically violent relationship. The most dangerous time for, sorry, a victim of domestic violence is when they leave the domestically violent relationship um, because that's usually when um, things amplify and get worse and we see a lot of, um, you know, domestic homicide occur after women leave. Um, so definitely putting her, pointing her in the direction of the right resources is how you can help when that time comes. I just want to use that opportunity as well to say that if you are experiencing domestic abuse or if you know someone who is experiencing domestic abuse, then you can call 1800RESPECT, which is 1800-737-732. And um, just as a first port of call to get some advice and to speak with a trained professional about what you can do or to even identify some of the things that may be going on in your life or the life of someone that you know. I mean, like I said, Justine, I don't have any formal training in this area, um, but I agree with what you've said based on what I know about the you know, practice and the choice of someone to perpetrate domestic abuse. I just wanted to point it out that, uh, sorry, to point out that the this little sister didn't necessarily say that she'd witnessed the slap. She may have just been told about it. So that wasn't that wasn't clear. But I think that there's two points there. Either if you did witness it, as Justine said, what is being done 
you know, behind even more closed doors. But also if you didn't witness it and your friend told you about it, that's a really powerful thing that she's done to confide in you. Because I think that you're right, Justine, that, you know, I don't think a slap just comes out of the blue. I think that there are other little coercive behaviours that occur that lead up to an expression of violence of that magnitude. Uh, And so the fact that she's reached out to confide in you and to sort of open the door on you being a support for her is really, really important. And as difficult as it is to kind of walk that line, I mean, we, we mentioned empathy before and, you know, oftentimes what happens when people report abuse against, you know, report perpetrated abuse against men who they know and who other people love that they run the risk of their communities rallying around the men. So the fact that you have expressed your rage in such an, you know, a profound way and your support for your friend will be really powerful and meaningful for her no matter what choice she makes now. It is very difficult for someone to leave an abusive relationship. It takes an average of seven attempts and that may occur over a number of years. So this may be her third attempt in telling you. It may be her first attempt. It may be part of... It certainly is probably part of a journey. Um, and the most important thing that you can do for your friend, as difficult as, as it is, is to just, as Justine said, hold space for her on that journey. Yeah, exactly. And also just on that note of 1-800-RESPECT, they will actually be able to give you a lot of information around local services as well um, in your area. They're a national service. So that's, I think, really important because a lot of people aren't aware of what's available locally. Um, and even if you make that call as a um, as a friend who's concerned, just to have that those resources and those knowledge available so when the time comes that, you know, she may come to you and say, I want to leave is you know, is going to be really valuable. And Clementine, you're so spot on when you say that a lot of times people do rally around the perpetrator. So having having you in her life is just, it's, it's so valuable. It is so valuable. And you're right, I did make the assumption that the slap was witnessed, but um, if it wasn't, like Clementine said, the fact that she's confided in you is huge. Um, and also just one last thing I wanted to add to what you said, Clem, about it takes an average of seven times before a woman leaves, um, attempts to leave before they leave for good, is usually a, on average at 32 instances of um, a violation. So that can be a physical assault, a, you know, severe put down, a, you know, a marital rapes, um, you know, all of those things, you know, the financial abuse, the, so many things, can't listen more, but that usually those instances, there's been like 32 instances of that before an attempt is even made to leave. So it's very, I didn't know that. there's a that's, lot going on here. I didn't know that. That's, um, that's really, wow. That is something that everyone should be made more aware of. It sounds like part of your anger, even maybe just a, a sliver of a percentage of it, could be and justifiably would be about the fact that you have been misled into someone's character and that you you've now lost someone or you've you've someone has been exposed to you as a person who you did not think that they were that whole time and rather than putting that on your friend in discussions maybe that come up or rather than bringing that energy to dealings with her because with her you need to be first and foremost her support and her pillar 
I think maybe discussing that with a professional yourself would actually enable you to, to work through some of that grief and that anger so that you can purely be there for her. Yeah, definitely, definitely great advice. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do like the show, then please do consider rating and reviewing it because it helps to move the hotline up in the charts and to gain an even bigger audience. And if you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Justine Reed, a proud Gangaloo woman, Instagram superstar and all-round excellent human. Justine, is there anything that you would like to plug or you know, place you'd like to direct people to or anything exciting you've got coming up? This was the most exciting thing I had coming up. Um, you know, I you can find me on Instagram, Murray, M-U-R-R-I underscore Mama, M-A-M-A. Um, and, yeah, that's where you'll find me just doing my thing. Um, yeah. And if you'd, like to, if you'd like to collaborate with Justine and her 18,000 followers, then you can contact her there. <laughs> she does look very, very good in very bright clothes. So fashion designers, have at it. Justine, it's been an absolute thrill. I love speaking with you. I love following your Instagram. I love the energy that you bring to that beautiful space. And I've really learned a lot from you. So thank you very much. I love having you as, a, you as a sister. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.